I'm Jakob. And I'm Ken. And this is the Oromo Digital Podcast. If you're not familiar with us, we are a digital marketing agency helping pharma and biotech companies create purposeful digital programs. We created this podcast to help our clients explore topics important to pharma and biotech companies, like digital marketing, industry trends, and career growth. In each episode, we try and pick the brains of some of the industry's most qualified and, more importantly, most interesting experts. Today, we'd like to welcome Anne Swan. Anne is the president and general manager of Sprout Pharmaceuticals in Canada. Anne spent almost 30 years in big pharma, with the last 10 of them at the VP level at Roche. She has had a successful and progressive career in sales and marketing across all product phases and has had time spent in both Canada and the UK. She is passionate about working in healthcare and about the development of those around her. She is driven by challenge and change and is excited by new and different areas of the business. So thanks, Anne, for joining us today. Ah, My pleasure. Thanks, Ken, for having me. So to start, could you quickly walk us through how your journey began in pharma? I have to admit it was a bit of an accident. So um, I started out in school in economics and I went, eventually I worked for Merrill Lynch and then I went to work for Visa and I'm going to admit how old I am. I was selling debit, uh, the concept of debit before debit cards existed. And TD Bank realized that they didn't have the technology to back it up, and they were putting us all into bank management programs. And I sent out some feelers to people who I was working with saying, I really want to stay in sales. I don't want to give this up. And somebody said, oh, my husband's a uh, regional sales manager for Bayer Pharmaceutical Company. Why don't you go have coffee with him? So I grew up in healthcare as in my family. I went out and did a bit of research, met with him, this fellow, for coffee, and two weeks later started working in sales at Bayer. And I really only intended to be there for a few years. I had other ideas, but the pharmaceutical industry is so uh, dynamic, constantly changing and challenging, and I just never left. So 30 years later, I've worked my way through lots of jobs and or lots of different career moves in sales and marketing, market access, different levels of responsibility, and last 10 years at Roche as a VP, both in Canada and in the UK, but it's just been a journey of learning the whole time through. So looking back at your time spent in the larger pharmaceutical organizations, what do you believe enabled you to have success? I think it's curiosity. I'm not going to tell you it's uh, academics because that's not really my background. It's not the science. I think it's just curiosity. It's curiosity about the business, how it works, I'm I'm competitive, internally competitive. You know, I'm not so much competitive outside, but I want to make sure I'm successful. So that means I work hard. I bring my game to work, and I'm constantly looking for the way to win, the way to move things forward. So I think it's really just been curiosity and perseverance uh, mixed in with being in the right place at the right time and, and having good people around me and good people to work for, some really good mentors and good people around me who have helped me move things along. So coming from that environment, what attracted you to an innovative startup like Sprout? So I think I said a few minutes ago, I never really thought I would stay in pharma. I have always wanted to do something on on my own. Um, You know, there's a running joke in our family that when I was about 12, I told my parents that as much as I loved them, I couldn't wait to move out. I wanted to be on my own and I wanted to start my own business and have a job and make money and build my own not my own empire, but certainly my own lifestyle. And I've always had that dream of going out and doing my own thing. But as I said, in pharma, the opportunities just kept coming. And uh, 
the challenges and the growth was always there. So it, it never felt like the right time to leave. But I think I finally felt like I'd hit a bit of a wall. If you want to stay in Canada, um, you know, your opportunities start to get limited at a certain point. So if you've been a VP in Canada for a number of years and you're not on the track to be the GM in that organization, then for me, I'm looking at two things. One, I want to continue to grow and be challenged, and I feel I'm ready, felt I was ready for that next step of responsibility. I couldn't do it or didn't feel I could or even wanted to do it within Roche. And I really wanted the opportunity to do something that was smaller, to build from the bottom up and and not take on something that was already somebody else's and established. So a small startup, it's you know, it's A to Z, soup to nuts, growth and development. You're into every corner of the business. So I think for me, it was just the right time to step out of big pharma. Um, the entrepreneurism was the big draw for me, the size of a startup and the challenges of doing something entirely new. So something that we've seen from our other clients and other experiences and relationships that we've had, we've seen a lot of people move from the larger over to the smaller. And, you know, we think that it does have a lot to do with the need to be entrepreneurial and have those kind of things. What do you really think is driving that trend or is that trend uh, something that you've seen right now with your peers? I think, as I said, I think it's a lot of, a lot of us hit a certain bar and then we're looking for a different way to continue to grow and learn and develop. And it might be the transition from maybe VP to GM, it might be the transition from GM in a smarter, a smaller organization into the next level up. The company I work for is very small. Canada is the only affiliate outside of the US at the moment, although we will expand. Um, and they're a privately held organization, which is again, an entirely different uh, beast. But I would say that's probably different than being one of many affiliates in a global startup. So my experience might be a bit different from other people's. Um, but I think the trend, the movement for people, you know, like me, is you hit a certain age and stage and level in your career and you're just ready for the next kind of experiment. And moving from one big company to another big company, for me personally, wasn't going to fit the bill. It just would have been same old, same old in a different organization. Six months in, you would have figured out the politics and the products, and you'd be doing the same thing that you were doing before. So I really wanted to make a significant change. Mm -hmm. And you had mentioned that you had made uh, another change moving from Canada to the UK. Uh, what did you learn about you know yourself and kind of your aspirations once you made that move? Yeah, I loved that move. And, you know, I, I unfortunately wasn't in the UK very long. I had to come back for personal reasons, for family reasons. But that global experience is, um, you know, it's fantastic. And I get asked this all the time. I really don't know when the right time in your life to do it. It's hard. If you do it with your family, you have to have a partner who is very willing to support your career, who's adventurous, who's experimental, uh, who's able to manage on their own. And you have to be prepared to, to go knowing you're going to work uh, hard and your partner's maybe going to hold down the fort with your family. So if you have that support system in play, um, it's a fantastic experience for everyone, for the whole family. You know, the you know, as I look back on that time, the learning was great. You're in a different culture, a different, um, a different organization. And even though we can say Canada to, to the UK, maybe that's not a big cultural experience. It was much bigger than I anticipated. Um, you know, the healthcare systems are different. The social norms are different. The operating uh, experiences within the organization are different. And you can even see how Canadians are educated 
versus the Brits. And you can see differences in how we work. So I learned so much from, um, from that experience. And I think about myself, I came back more confident because I found out that my skills and abilities and leadership capabilities that I demonstrated in Canada, to me, were just that it was all I knew. But when I went and I implemented them in the UK and they were so re well received, I came to appreciate how well trained and how, how much my experience in Canada meant and how transferable it was into another country and what I could bring into that other country that, um, that they didn't have. Mm -hmm. It's great validation, right? Yeah, 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 it was really good. It was fantastic experience. For the most part, it was a great experience for the family too. Different, you know, different view to the world to come back with. And once you moved away from the larger over to the uh, smaller innovative startup setting, what were the challenges that you experienced and uh, kind of how did you adapt to those challenges? Yeah, um, I don't think it's for everyone. You know, I, th I think you really have to be prepared to roll up your sleeves in a different way. And it's frustrating because you don't have any, really any of the resources you're accustomed to. Now, my organization is super small. We're only four people in our management team, and we're probably another five or six in the field. So we are very small. So there is no such thing as market research. There is no such thing as a market access department. Uh, so between the four of us, we two of us in particular cover legal, HR, market access, regulatory affairs, distribution, operations, general management, finance. I don't know what else am I missing? It, you know, import, export, whatever else it is. Uh, on top of that, we have a medical director. And we also have somebody who looks after all our commercial work, which means sales and marketing, which we also, you know, the other two of us dabble in. So you are everything. And there are some of those areas I rambled off that I feel pretty confident in. And there are others that are green space, right? I've never had to start an organization, figure out what, what it, uh, market authorization holder accountabilities are, set up a legal entity, understand different contracts and master services agreements. When you're in a large, larger organization, somebody else takes care of all of that for you. So all of a sudden, you're, you're it for everything. So it comes with a lot of responsibility. Those are maybe, you know, the plus sizes. Other people might look at that and say, wow, that sounds like kind of fun and that's exciting and that's what I want to do. But the day-to-day -day working, you, you feel like you have a hand tied behind your back because you don't have anyone else to turn to with the expertise. And we work on a really tight budget, so I can't even hire it out. You know, a lot of the time we're trying to figure it out on our own. And I have worked more conferences and conventions in the last year than I have my entire life put together. And I have other people who come to say hi and they say, oh, we don't see GMs at the booth very often. I think, yeah, well, when there's four people in your organization, if there's a conference and you want to get to know your customers, you're at the booth. So it's a, it's a big transition and you don't have money. You know, I think probably our startup is unique. But I would say most startups in general, you know, that's just the name of the game. You have one product, maybe two. And if you're a Canadian startup, you don't have a pipeline to draw from. You don't have a legacy that is funding the rest of your growth. And so every dollar is monitored and everything that you do is, is uh, managed and looked after because you really are looking at it as, as it's your business and your drive to be profitable is, is ever present. And I think you kind of touched on uh, my next question is, um, what do you like most about the, this new work setting and the environment? 
Uh, I love the autonomy. You know, if we meet someone we want to hire, I talk to the three other people that I work with. They agree we hire. It's done tomorrow. We don't have an HR department. We don't have a legal department. And I'm sure that might, you know, kick me in the butt one day. But at the moment, it's, it's really fantastic to be able to make decisions so quickly. And if we have the money and we have an idea and we're, we work with a supplier and we want to move, it's really just um, my commercial director and I having that conversation, making the decision and moving forward. So decision-making is quick. Process is um, non-existent on a local level. The four of us meet every week. Any decisions that need to be made, if they haven't been made in the interim, are made then. Um, I love that I work with people I really admire and enjoy working with, and it's a small organization, so I'm constantly in contact with them, so I get to know them well and, and understand their skills and their strengths. Um, you know, process comes into play when I start to talk about the U.S., but from a Canadian point of view, it's really, um, you know, it's a very tight ship. We make decisions. We are all engaged with the customers. We have a single-minded purpose. Uh, we have one brand. We have one job to do. We have to do it right. So those are the pieces I love. Mm-hmm. And do you find you um, feel successes and failures in a different way? Do you feel like it, it has more of an impact uh, being so close to the business now? It's, it is true. It, and it's really personal, right? If in you know, If I were to talk about my old world, if I was responsible for two or three brands, let's say, I could maybe spread my successes and failures across two or three. And as an organization, we could spread it across you know, 10 or more. In this case, I'm answerable for one product and one thing only. So there's a lot more exposure. Uh, There's also a lot more, um, you know, there's commitment. I'm not distracted. So yes, I feel it personally. And and, uh, most people in a startup also have some sort of, you know, skin in the game. So yeah, you feel it personally in terms of whether you're successful or not in that organization. So on the other side of the coin, um, is there anything that you miss about being part of a large-scale organization? Yeah, I do miss, I miss the social pieces for sure. I miss, I work almost exclusively from home now, which is another piece I love because we're so small, I can do that and, and I have the flexibility to do that. And I think in this day and age, we don't need a big office because we don't see customers um, so I don't need a big office. So we, we have a situation that works for us. Having said that, I do miss going into the office. I miss seeing peers and colleagues, and I miss some of the social and the camaraderie piece that goes with working in a big organization. I miss, um, I miss the thoughts and insights and challenges from other people in terms of what we're doing and our, you know, could we do it differently? And I learned so much, you know, sitting around that executive table, I learned so much from my peers, their view on different aspects of the business, whether it was my brand or other brands, how they approached it and what sort of ideas they had, what sort of um, programs they wanted to run, what challenges they had. So you lose the richness of that learning environment when you're so single focused and so small. So I miss that for sure. So... um Moving to a different organizational structure and perhaps a new model altogether, um, did you find that you had to change your leadership style at all? Yeah, I think so. I mean, as I said, we're so small. If you don't fit, it's obvious pretty quickly. So sadly, you can't afford to kind of carry anybody that's not pulling their weight. And and so that's a bit of a change. And not, not that I didn't feel that way, that sense of responsibility in a lo- larger organization, but... You know, back in the older days when, when you had 10 or 15, 20, 25 people in a team, 
someone could hide for a little while before you figured it out. Right now, we see things pretty quickly in real time, and it, and I can't afford to carry anybody that's not really on board. So that's a change, um, not one I'd love, but that's a change. And I think also from a leadership point of view, I'm I'm much more transparent, and not because I not that I wasn't transparent before. But we're all in it together. You know, the eight or nine of us are codependent on making this successful. So, um, you know, I'm pretty clear with my expectations, probably more than I was before. I'm clear with my expectations. We're clear with what the results are looking like or what the, you know, analytics that we do, what they, what they look like. I think we also um, make changes a lot faster in the business. So, you know, I'd, I'd say my leadership ch- style has changed. I'm lighter. I'd want to say I'm more fun because there's less bureaucracy. Uh, but at the same time, I'm maybe a bit tougher. So how have you changed your approach to business strategy and tactical execution now, if at all? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think, again, in line with what I've been saying, everything is just a little quicker and a little bit more direct. So... You know, some of the things I've learned in, uh, so here's two examples of differences maybe between a big organization and a small one. Super silly examples. In a big organization, I I had a meeting a while ago at the Intercontinental Hotel, and, you know, I was appalled at how much money I had to pay for uh, food services and no opportunity to bring them in any other way. And then we got to the meeting room and I have to pay for internet for every single individual and I have to pay for a flipping extension cord to plug in my computer and so on and so on and so on. In a big organization, I don't really care. All that stuff, A, it gets taken care of and B, it's just a cost of business and I don't really think about it. In a smaller organization, I'm calling up the contract manager or the banquet host to nickel and dime over every single expenditure because it's personal. And the same, I think, applies to how we have to now run our sales and marketing. Uh, so when we talk to marketing companies, we're negotiating because I can't afford to pay what I might have afforded to be able to pay in a lar- larger organization. So, um, you know, we're, we're much more clear about what are we paying for, what are we going to get out of it, how can we make it last long term, how can I take a program and make sure it has lungs like legs and lungs to continue to play out over a period of time. So I think we're, we're much smarter about that. And similarly with the sales force, um, you know, we co-own um, customers more than I would have in a larger organization. So where we have important customers, I'm not afraid to call them up. And the reps understand that this is all just part of kind of a team dynamic to support our, our sales force. Uh, on the reps as well, you know, you wouldn't think about the GM understanding how many calls you're doing in a day and who you're calling on and where you're spending your time. Well, I know that data now because it's much more important to me. Everything is just that much more micro. Like you mentioned, certain large-scale efforts like, you know, sponsoring some big event um, is not really on the table a lot of the time. You have to be a little bit wiser with how you spend your money. Has that changed um, kind of the the channels that you use to contact your customers or even how you're going to meet your objectives? Yeah, absolutely. So if I were to go back into, a, again, a larger organization, we would have had you know, robust detail aids that changed regularly. We would have papers that are being published and utilized on a regular basis. And we would have had larger investments in symposia and other sorts of educational programs. 
I think now we are much more leaning on um, other suppliers to help us get the message out broadly in the most economical way. We, of course, use our reps. We don't do large-scale symposia. We have limitations on some of our publications in terms of what we're developing. We just don't have the money to be running publications right now. So we're smarter about how we use materials over the long run. I think we're also more creative in terms of how we capture attention. So it's not a matter of changing the message so much. It's a matter of catching attention. Um, and we're doing a lot more. We can't obviously go direct to patient in Canada, but we're trying to do a lot more through digital outreach. We are looking to work aggressively in the telemedicine space. Uh, we are looking at um, uh, other programs that bring education to a broad reach of physicians. And we believe that everybody, both public and patient, as well as physicians, are much more interested in a digital approach and or um, and by that I don't mean just direct to consumer or uh, advertising. I also include email outreach. Um, we have an inside sales person who's being very successful. So we've changed our approach again through both sales and marketing, but also in how we spend our money and what kind of programs we invest in. So this exercise has um, basically encouraged you to look really critically at all the tactics and strategies that are out there. Have you had any aha moments um, for any of the traditional tactics that you previously used at larger organizations and realized we were really not getting any value out of that? Has anything really popped up for, for that or do you still see um, you know, a lot of the value there? I think probably the biggest change isn't so much what we eliminated, but maybe what we've added. So I don't think I would have explored telemedicine as a channel necessarily. And I, w and I must say, it's still very um, embryonic, right? There are only maybe 300, 500,000 people on engaged in telemedicine services in Canada, but I think that's going to continue to change. So I think that's a wave we want to look at and see how that's going to move forward in the future. Digital marketing has always been a bit of a challenge in the pharma industry, and I think we're starting to figure out how to work within that domain. And we're looking at probably more, I'm going to say intermediaries, who help bridge that message between patients and physicians in a totally compliant and ethical way. I, and I do think for Canada, it's fair that there are divisions in those lines. Um, but I think we're finding ways to help patients get more informed and more engaged in the conversation. So uh, I don't know that I would, um, if I had the money, I would probably do some more of the traditional programs that I've done in the past. I just choose to prioritize them differently now. One of the nice parts about, you know, startup environments is that you can be nimble. Uh, at other times, you are expected to quickly shift and change depending on what the environment has kind of, you know, how it's changed. Is flexibility something that you've built into your strategy and tactics? And is that something that's a real focus for a lot of the things you do? I'm going to say a lot of flexibility is budget driven. Okay. Right. So we're flexible. We're nimble and flexible because we're so small and because decision making is made within, you know, maximum a group of, of four. In terms of our ability to flex and change, though, um, you know, I can already think of a number of examples where, you know, for example, we were down the road to do a public panel discussion 
and then realized at the last minute almost that it was not the right timing and not the right situation. And so we were able to pull that off the table and turn it into something else, which we could, you know, push out a couple of months, which had a different sort of reader or viewership that was m- more appropriate uh, for the timing. So again, there's not a lot of layers to go through. And again, because your money is so important, you have to make sure everything is going to have value. And if it doesn't have value, you pull the plug and you move on. So I guess the adage I would say is we're learning to fail fast. Mm-hmm. So when we look at things that aren't working, we, we decide to stop and retool. And, and actually, now that you asked the question, I can tell you that I've done more of that in the last six months than I probably did in the last five years. And, you know, <clears throat> a number of examples where we look at the data and the data tells us we need to shift. So whether it's digital advertising, which we can watch in real time, and make strategic decisions as to where we invest or how we invest, or whether it's um, rep activities and where we want them to focus their effort as we learn. You know, it's really an iterative and learning model that we're in right now. So as we learn, we shift on the fly uh, a lot more aggressively than I ever have in the past. And, And I think given the size and given our access to information, it's easier for us to do that. For somebody who's interested in making a similar shift you mentioned a lot of the things that you have to look at the trade-offs between you know your new work environment Um, what tips would you give them just in terms of the attitude that they would need to embrace this change yeah i think you have you you obviously have to be entrepreneurial right you don't go into this without um sort of that desire to build and to grow and if you're entrepreneurial that also should read in bold letters behind at high risk so everything that we do, and whenever I think of the company, any small company, you can be wildly successful, or you can go bankrupt, right? There's a lot on the there's a lot on the table, and there's a lot riding on it. So you have to be able to take on some risk, and you have to be very open to change. You have to be open to, um, you know, success or failure. So we, you know, we've talked a lot in the past about ambiguity. And this is a real exercise in ambiguity, especially if you're working for a privately run organization. You don't always have all the facts and data in front of you. Large element of trust. So trust in your organization, belief in what you're doing has merit. If it's the only product that you're working on, you really have to believe in the category, believe in the message, believe in the product. Um, I think you, you, I am grateful for my curiosity because I think that's what keeps me alive in this. I'm curious about how the business runs. I'm curious about decisions that are made. I'm curious about the impact on the patient. I'm curious about the KOLs and how they approach different therapeutic areas and how they think about things. And and I'm always looking for different ways to run our business that are more efficient, more effective, but also that make it a good place to work and that keep the people engaged. Well, great. Thank you so much for this chat. We're all over with time, so thanks. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Anne. Thank you. That was episode two of the Aromo Digital Podcast. If you like this episode, go visit our website so you can see our past episode with Michael Aceto, a life sciences executive recruiter. Again, I'm Ken Stolpe. And I'm Jakob McConan, and we are Aromo Digital Group. We're a digital agency helping pharma and biotech companies create purposeful digital programs. If you'd like to learn more about us and how we can help you, please look us up on LinkedIn or go to aromodigitalgroup.com. That's all for now.